Welcome to the Victory of the Lamb podcast. We are a simple, straightforward Bible teaching church located in Katy, Texas. If you're in the area, we'd love for you to stop by anytime. Otherwise, we hope you use this podcast to grow in your faith and be confident in sharing that faith with many. You can find us online at VOTL.org. We hope you enjoy this message. God bless your week. Dear Christian, grace, mercy, and God's never-ending peace be yours in abundance today as you consider the treasure of deep repentance. We're going to start this morning with three little words that have been whispered, spoken, shouted across the lands in every tongue during every century. Not my fault. Those three words have been communicated by human beings ever since that fateful day in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve had eaten fruit from the tree, God had explicitly commanded them to avoid. And as the Lord came to find them, to bring them to repentance, do we hear either of them saying anything but, not my fault? Adam started by saying, the woman you put here with me She gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's Eve's fault and it's your fault, God, for putting her here. Then Eve, when offered a chance to have a different take, followed her husband's lead and said, The devil made me do it. Not my fault. And ever since then, every century, every country, every tongue, every soul, Not my fault has been resonating loud and clear with devastating results. Today, I encourage you to examine in your own life how that has been true for you, maybe even uncovering one or two not my fault areas that you haven't really thought about before. And all of that is not to try to pin you against the wall in condemnation, but it is to help you land in your Savior's forgiving arms after deep repentance. That's what the prophet Ezekiel was trying to do for the Israelites who were not living in Israel, but in Babylon. You see, here's what had happened in the year 580 B.C. or so. For centuries, Israelite generation after Israelite generation had lived there in the Holy Land, but instead of living a life of deep repentance, the vast majority of them lived lives of godlessness, arrogance, reckless immorality, me first. Prophet after prophet had been sent to warn them, and yet that warning fell upon deaf ears. And so in 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire destroyed, wiped out, annihilated the Israelites. And those who did not perish were exiled a thousand miles away to Babylon. Our Lord is so resilient and gracious, he didn't just say, figure it out, guys. But instead he sent the prophet Ezekiel also from Israel to Babylon to minister to them and bring them God's word. Now, if anyone could have been saying, not my fault, maybe it could have been Ezekiel, who was a faithful prophet and yet had to 
uproot everything and be inconvenienced to go to Babylon as the Lord commanded. And there in Babylon, what did he find? Did he find Israelites who were repenting? No, he found Israelites who were saying among themselves, almost like a national anthem, not my fault, not my fault, not my fault. Stewing, brewing, growing, growing further away from God by the day. Let's get into the scriptures and I'll explain the proverb that they were saying like a national anthem and help you see why that was the case. Verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea is our fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and so on. They're the ones who committed the reckless, godless immorality. They're the ones who were warned by the prophet time and time again and did nothing about it. The parents ate the sour grapes. They're the ones who devoured sinful attitudes. But it's the children whose teeth are set on edge. It's a way to say the children are the ones who are suffering for what the parents have done. It's a poetic way, I suppose, you could say the Israelites in Babylon were saying, it's our father's fault that we are stuck here, not my fault. And it was brewing and stewing and growing and they couldn't even think straight about anything else. How would God command Ezekiel to deal with insolent people like this? Verse 3, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. And let's take one more verse, verse 25 too. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you, Israelites, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? The Lord wanted to plant a seed of change in the people of Israel who were in Babylon by first of all saying, I am the Lord God of all. I am always alive. I'm always paying attention. I will deal with the sins of the fathers. They're not getting away with it. And I will also deal with your sins. You aren't getting away with it. So maybe you are bearing an unsettling fruit from hundreds of years of godless activity and now you're the generation that has to live in Babylon. And yet... Have you lived a perfect life? Have you followed every warning from God's word? Have you listened faithfully and well to the prophet at every turn? The soul who sins is the soul that will die. God was trying to help those people think more about their own sin, which was a lot, which continued to heap up upon itself the more they said, not my fault, not my fault, not my fault. 
And then he said in verse 25, the way of the Lord is not just, that's what you say, but is it not your ways that are unjust? Basically, the Lord is trying to get them to stop thinking so much about the sin of someone else and instead think deeply about your sin and how God is going to deal with it. How does not my fault impact your life and mine? Too many ways to count, really. The not my fault attitude thrives when there is a casual approach to sin. Laugh it off, not a big deal. Everyone else is doing it. You only live once. Those are just a few to get started. And that leads into a not my fault type of attitude when we are, are caught in a sin that is a big deal. The not my fault attitude really grows when we are experts in someone else's sin instead of dealing with our own, starting with an apology. The political scene is full of people who are experts in the other side's sin. The next time someone in the world of politics says, I'm sorry, I messed that up. That might be the first time. What about a marriage that happens when the husband is an expert in the wife's sins and just gets more and more frustrated about it, ignoring his own? And the wife is an expert in her husband's sins and she is more and more frustrated about them ignoring her own. Siblings, same thing. Co-workers, same thing. The list goes on and on and on how our relationships are poisoned when not my fault becomes the centerpiece. Gossip is another ugly fruit. The national anthem of your heart and those around you might become not my fault, but it sure is hers or theirs. What would God do with people like us, people who are so quick to cast blame, people who are so slow to apologize as God would say needs to happen through his holy word, his holy law. The soul who sins is the soul that will die. It doesn't taste good to drink that, and yet we must drink it because it's God's truth. The helpful point is when we do drink that and we are acknowledging deeply within our heart not the sins of someone else but our own sin, our own failure to love and trust God perfectly, our own ranking of sin, which default mode almost always is, their sin is worse, my sin is less. When God helps us to get there, He then has three words to tell us that have been whispered, spoken, shouted throughout all of time, across the centuries, across the lands. I love you. That's why God wants us to admit our sin, so that we then listen deeply when he says, I love you. I want you close with me forever. I gave him my only son so that it could be a, uh, something that happens. Jesus 
did not ever say, not my fault. He's the only perfect human being that ever lived. And yet, even though he didn't have to, he willingly took your gossip, your times of saying, not my fault, your comparing self to others, puffing up and crushing others wrongly. Jesus took all of that to the cross. He paid for it in full. He buried it in the grave. He rose on Easter morning, fresh and clean and new, without our sin, clinging to him any longer. Jesus stops the blame game because he takes the blame himself. That's why the Lord says what he says about our sin, encouraging us, commanding us to own it and not deflect or blame or be irresponsible. Own it and drop it at the cross so that we can live. Listen for that theme coming through as I read the rest of the sermon verses for today, starting with verse 26. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because of the sin they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all the offenses they have committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live. They will not die. Yet the Israelites say, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Lord, the Sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. The Lord says, 28, consider all of your offenses. Be an expert in that, not in someone else's. Because the soul that sins is the soul that will die. Parents cannot believe for their kids. Kids cannot believe for their parents. Parents cannot be condemned for their kids' unbelief. And kids cannot be condemned for their parents' unbelief. The soul that sins needs to deal with God individually. And that's why he begs us to repent. Consider it all. Drop it at the cross. Move forward with a new heart, a new spirit, an attitude that trusts instead of blames, an attitude that owns sin instead of acting like it never happened, an attitude that doesn't rank one sinner to the next because we're all the same before God. No one's perfect. That means we're all desperately in need of repentance and it also means we can adopt the same heart that God has described there in the last verse. I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. 
Jesus has paid for every single sin of every single person. And we can carry that with us as we now have different relationships, not ones that center on not my fault, but instead ones that center on I love you in Christ. This new attitude has some wonderful things about it. When someone points out a sin of ours or when we uncover a sin of ours in the scripture, instead of hiding from it or ignoring it or trying to fix it with another sin, we repent. It's the opposite of saying, not my fault. We say, it is my fault, but Jesus paid for it. And that's where I'm hiding, in him. What about when someone has something that is their fault, but then they blame you? And it really isn't your fault. You see what I'm saying? Someone is locked up into into some sin. They're saying, not my fault, and they're casting that blame on you. How do you handle that? The God-pleasing way would be to not take it personally, to not fight fire with fire, but to see them as a soul for whom Jesus died, to see them as God saw Adam and Eve, as God saw these people of Israel who were in Babylon, as God saw me and you. Someone who needs to repent, a soul that needs help. And you can have that deep compassion that hones through the blame that isn't true, the lies, the the deflections, and you can help them get to know Jesus better and, and help them in a way that maybe no one else is helping them. There's a story about a man who was born to a family. His father was an alcoholic, and so was his grandfather, and so was his great-grandfather. Alcoholism had run in the family for a long time. And when this man's grandfather was dealing with his great-grandfather, who was an alcoholic with bitterness and frustration all around, The relationship was broken, and great-grandpa died, and grandpa didn't go to the funeral. But grandpa had his own alcoholism problems, had a broken relationship with his son, and so grandpa died, and dad did not go to the funeral. But dad had his son. His son was an agnostic. There's a God somewhere, but I don't know if I can ever learn anything about him, not anything good for sure. And he was drifting through life, with a long family history of trouble and not my fault, while lots of fault should have been pinned on them. But then this young man learned about Jesus. And he not only was not an alcoholic in the family pattern, he also began to reach out to his dad before he died. He attended his father's funeral the first time in three generations that happened. And he began to set his heart on things above instead of things below. I'm trying to help you think about how powerful it can be when you stop the not my fault song and instead in its place have the Jesus loves me song surrounding you. The present is more important than the past. The Lord desires 
deep repentance. Dear Christian, repent and live and help others to do the same. Amen. We know your time is precious. Thank you so much for investing some of your time with us today. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you be so kind as to click to follow our show and give us a five-star rating? That's a quick and easy way to help us get the message of truth out to more people. Thank you so much. God bless your day in Christ.